Good morning, friends. It's great to be with you on this cold but beautiful Sunday morning. Two days in a row of sun. What more could you possibly ask for? Um, it was beautiful driving in and seeing the, sh- the sun shine on the trees with the snow. It was cold but beautiful. Um, as I look out and as I was kind of spending some time greeting this morning, I saw a lot of familiar faces, which is amazing. I saw some new faces as well. And so if this is your first time here at Northridge, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you have decided to join us. My name is Jacob. If you don't know who I am, I am one of the pastors here at Northridge Community Church. And once again, I have been afforded the opportunity to share with you this morning, or using a phrase we typically like to use around Northridge, to bring you the word. I know this is covered on a lot of duct tape, but this is a Bible. Um, And we use that phrase, to bring the word, because it truly is the simplest but most accurate description of exactly what someone who comes up here is attempting to do in sharing. Our primary goal is to not provide you a motivational speech or a lecture. Our primary goal is to not be original or relevant. Those things aren't bad. But our primary intention is to simply but faithfully present the Word or the Bible to us. And we do this week in, week out in a few different ways. Sometimes we will open it up and we will work through a particular passage systematically and try to unpack exactly what it's communicating to us. Sometimes we do it a little bit more implicitly, kind of like what we did last week, where we will draw on teachings and themes and ideas that you see throughout the course of Scripture and then apply those truths to a particular area of life particularly to the life of a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century. And the reason we do this um, for roughly 20 to 30 minutes each and every week is because of what we believe about this book, right? We believe that this book is the result of an incredible divine human partnership. And what I mean by that is that we, yes, believe that these words were, were written by human beings, as many of the texts in here claim to be written by our particular individual. But we also believe that the individuals that were given the gift and responsibility of writing these words were under the power and the influence of the Spirit of God. And so through that incredible divine human partnership, we now hold in our hands the very words of God. That's why J.D. Greer says, if you want to hear God speak out loud... Read the Bible out loud, because that is exactly what it is. It is the words of God. And so it's no wonder that this book is quite popular, so much so that the New York Times can't even put it on their list of bestsellers, because if they did, every other book every year would just be competing for second place. Because this book, no matter what you may hear, is the most popular book in the history of humanity. And so as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, this book is something that we inherited. None of us wrote this book. None of us were involved in the collecting of the different writings that make up this book and and organizing it in the way that we now have in our hands. None of us were involved in that process. We just, at some point in our life, were just given it and handed to us. We, We inherited this book. And there is quite a long history about how this Bible came to be in the form that we now have it, 
which is an interesting conversation, but a conversation for another time. But what's hard not to notice when you first open a Bible is that there are two parts to it. There is the first part, which we refer to as the Old Testament, and the second part, which we refer to as the New Testament. And the New Testament being about the life and the teachings of Jesus and kind of the after effects of all, of, of all the stuff that happened as a result of the life that he lived. And the first part, which is really more the first three quarters, is all the stuff that happens before Jesus shows up onto the scene. And so it is a two testament scripture. And so what that means was that when the earliest disciples of Jesus were formulating their sacred scriptures, roughly in the second century, they didn't just think that it was the teachings of Jesus that should be included in the Christian scriptures. They believed that everything that came before was also important. And the only reason they would have included it in their sacred scriptures was because they believed it had a purpose to the practicing life of a follower of Jesus. And so once again, as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century, who we are now centuries removed from some of those, those Holy Spirit-ordained decisions when composing the scriptures, right? We are centuries removed from that. And so it's quite easy sometimes that as we engage in this first half to sometimes wonder why. <laughs> why is it here? What value does it have? And that question be can become particularly relevant when we're engaging in things like Numbers or Leviticus, right? And sometimes when we're engaging in those texts, it's easy to go from wondering why it's here to kind of hoping it wasn't and wishing it wasn't. Because most of us go to this text to find answers. And the New Testament is great at providing answers because that's all Jesus is teaching and that's the person that we're devoting our lives to. But more often than not, we are presented with a heck of a lot more questions than answers when we engage in the first three quarters of our sacred scriptures. I've, uh, I've heard it been said that for many of us, the Old Testament is like our crazy uncle. Does anyone here have a crazy uncle? Any hands? No? Oh, we're, we're kind people here at Northridge. Are any of us a crazy uncle? Any, there we go. Greg is a crazy uncle. I like it. Now, the thing about a crazy uncle like Greg is that, sorry, I, I won't pick on Greg, is that occasionally he will say something profound and beautiful. But a lot of the time, he's blabbering on about who knows what, saying things he probably shouldn't say in this day and age. Kind of like the first three quarters of our Bible, right? Occasionally, we will see moments where there is beautiful, beautiful writings, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But a lot of the time, it seemingly is going on about who knows what. Saying things that don't necessarily align with things you should say in this day and age. And with both our crazy uncles and the Old Testament, we have inherited them. We didn't pick them, we, were just in, we inherited them. And so now we have to deal with them because they're here and they're not going anywhere. And so in order to get through maybe some of those more uncomfortable family dinners or to be faithful to the fact that we have inherited a two-testament scripture and that the Old Testament is here, 
we often come up with coping mechanisms, right? How to deal with these realities. And so when it's dealing with our crazy uncle, we may not invite him over that often, or we may avoid particular topics of conversation, or maybe we do the opposite and dive right into a full-out political battle at the dinner table. Um, but with the Old Testament, we also have some coping mechanisms, a few of which I have listed, some popular ones. The first I call the hero example model. And with this coping mechanism, the Old Testament is primarily viewed as a list of heroes that we are to emulate. And so we go to the text to read about the life and the example that these heroes have set so that we can model our lives after them. Another coping mechanism is what I call the theological answer book model. And so with this coping mechanism, what we're primarily doing is reading the New Testament, but sometimes when we're doing that, questions do arise, whether that be a historical question or a cultural question. And so we resort to the, the Old Testament to answer some of those questions, because often it's very good at doing that. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is given any weight in and of itself. A third um, coping mechanism that I've identified is what I call the inspirational heartwarming model. And with this, the Old Testament is primarily viewed as like a grab bag of one-liners. And so what we do is we go to the text and we find a, a one-liner, like the one I referenced earlier, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We take that, we probably remove it from its actual cultural and historical um, time and place, and then we apply it to our lives to bring us a moment of comfort in whatever season of life we may be finding ourselves in. Now let's be clear that all of us are guilty of these coping mechanisms. Every single one of us who has opened it has probably been guilty of these coping mechanisms. And that's perfectly okay. Because the intent behind these coping mechanisms is really good. Right? The intent is to be faithful to the fact that we have inherited a Two Testament scripture, and so we want to use it. And I will say that there are many times and places when those coping mechanisms aren't actually a bad thing. They can be a good thing, because there are moments in the Old Testament where we read of very righteous people, and so modeling decisions the way they made decisions is, is often a good thing. And there are moments when the Old Testament can provide you a very helpful answer to something you are reading about in the New Testament, and there are moments when the Old Testament can and should bring us tremendous comfort. But if those coping mechanisms are the only reason and the only ways that we are engaging in this text, or they are how we justify its presence in our sacred scriptures, then you do run into some challenges. Because if the Old Testament is just a book of heroes that we are to emulate, then you have to turn a blind eye to many of the stories in the Old Testament. Right? If, our, if our mind is set on having a heart for God like David did, you're going to have to ignore the Bathsheba part. Because <laughs> we certainly don't want to do that. If the Old Testament is just a theological answer book for the New Testament, then the laws of Moses will probably really be really helpful to you. The prophets might provide you some value, but a book like Judges isn't really going to do you any good. It doesn't provide you anything if that is your understanding of what the Old Testament provides. Or if the Old Testament is just a grab bag of random one-liners thrown around, 
then you are going to thoroughly enjoy about 4% of the Old Testament. Because we know that a lot of it is not that heartwarming. And so, the ultimate question I want us to consider just this morning as we kick off our series is, why did the earliest followers of Jesus believe that the Hebrew Scriptures, or Hebrew Scriptures for them, that's what we would refer to as the Old Testament, why did they believe that the Hebrew Scriptures were important to include into our sacred Scriptures? Right? Because if those coping mechanisms are not the answer, what is the answer? Why are they here? And thankfully, we don't have to guess at the answer, and you don't have to take my word for it, because in Luke chapter 24, we get the answer from the man himself, Jesus Christ. And so, because for Jesus, the Old Testament for us was his scriptures. It's all he had, and as you read through the life and the teachings of Jesus, he loved the scriptures, and he used them quite frequently. And in Luke chapter 24, we get what I think is the clearest picture and explanation as to why Jesus found value in them and how he understood them. And most likely, why the earliest followers of Jesus chose to include them into their scriptures and devote themselves to it. And so we are picking up the story again in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to invite Todd to come up and read our passage this morning. Uh, Just before he does, um, I'm just going to, to orient us in the story. And so, again, Luke chapter 24, it's right at the very end. Jesus has now been dead for three days, and there are some women who go and visit the tomb to attend to his body, and he's missing. And some angels appear, they tell them that Jesus has risen, so these women rush back to tell the disciples, and upon hearing it, Peter, one of the disciples, rushes to the tomb to see it for himself, and then, Todd, I'll invite you to read, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmanus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their face downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who is going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
Amazing. Thanks, Todd. So we have two disciples, um, none of whom were like the core 12 or 11 at this point, but Jesus had many more than just 12 disciples. And so we have two of them here, and they have heard the testimony of the women who visited the tomb, and they are confused. (laughs) The text tells us that they believed that Jesus was a prophet sent from God and that they had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But then he died. And as the text says, um, he's been dead for three days, so he's definitely dead. And there are some of their friends that go and visit the tomb, but they find it empty, and they say there's visions of angels saying that Jesus is now risen, but nobody can find him. And so these men have no idea how to make sense of all the events that are going on around them. And thankfully, the man they just so happen to be talking with is the risen Jesus himself. And so Jesus so gracefully and compassionately helps them sort out their confusion by saying how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so here we have Jesus pointing out their main point of confusion because the men thought that Jesus' death messed everything up. And what Jesus shows them is that his death did not mess everything up. It's actually what had to happen in order for Jesus to fulfill his role as their Messiah. And what I want us to pay particular attention to is how Jesus goes about explaining this to them. How he chooses to reveal who he is to these men. And we see it in verse 27, the very last verse we read where it says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so if I'm reading this right, what Jesus does to help them see and understand who he is, is by pointing them to the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. Because he believed that his story And the story within the Hebrew scriptures were very much connected in some way. And we see in the text that Jesus points to two specific places in the scriptures. We see him point to, it says, to Moses and all the prophets. So that's peculiar. Why is he pointing to those specific places? Well, if we continue on in the narrative, that question kind of works itself out. And so as the story goes, the men eventually figure out exactly who they are that they are talking with. And upon, being the, upon Jesus revealing himself to them, Jesus disappears. These two men then rush off to tell the 11 all that they had seen. And during that interaction, Jesus also presents himself to them. And so during that interaction, if you jump to verse 44 of the same chapter, it says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so again, this is literally the exact same conversation Jesus just had, and he does the same thing, right? In order to reveal his identity to his disciples, he links his story to the story of the Old Testament. And once again, he points to, this time it's written, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So again, we revisit that question. What is Jesus doing by pointing to these specific places? 
If you are familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know that in the Christian tradition, it is typically divided into four sections. We have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, often attributed to Moses. We then have the history books, which track through kind of the story of Israel and then through the monarchy. We then arrive at the poetry writings, or sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature, stuff like Job and Psalms and Proverbs. And then we finish the final section with the prophets, both the major prophets and the minor prophets. And so in the Christian tradition, these four sections kind of together represent the entirety of the Old Testament. Now this was not the working categorization that the Jewish people, both today and in Jesus' day, worked with. They worked with a completely different way of organizing their scriptures. And they did so with a threefold categorization. They start with the Torah, which is very similar to our Pentateuch, the same five books of the Bible attributed to Moses. The second section is what they called the, pardon my horrible pronunciation, the Nevaim, which is the Hebrew word for the prophets. And then their third section is what they called the Ketuvim, which was the Hebrew word, or is the Hebrew word for like, very generically, the writings. And you'll notice if you, can, if you have very good vision that the first book in the writings is Psalms. And Psalms was kind of like the most popular and well-known book within that writing. It was kind of like the archetype for the whole book. And so often the Ketuvim would just be referred to as the Psalms. But when, when they would use that phrase, they weren't just referring to the book of Psalms, but the writings. And so, and you'll notice at the top there that they call their scriptures the Tanakh, if you've ever heard that phrase. And so it's really just an acronym. The T stands for Torah, the N stands for Nevaim, and the K stands for Ketuvim, and then... That doesn't really make a word, so you fill in some vowels and you have the word Tanakh. And so, if you hear Jewish people even today refer to their scriptures, they refer to it as the Tanakh because that's their understanding of and their breakdown of the scriptures. And so if we re-enter the, the text through that lens, Jesus' words make a little bit more sense when he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Because what he's saying is that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, is actually about me. It's not like there's like, oh, there's a line here in the prophecies, and there's a line here that kind of point the idea of me. He's saying the beginning part, the middle part, and the end part. It's all about me. And they are actually working together in a way. They're not just randomly put together writings. They are working together to communicate a unified story. And according to Jesus, if you track through this story, through the Torah and through the Nevi'im and through the Ketuvim, you will understand exactly who Jesus is. Because the story the entire time has been leading us to him. And what exactly is the story that it's communicating? Well, Jesus gives us his very brief summary of it in verse 46, where he says, this is what is written, again, referring to the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Now, when I read this, this description, my initial thought is that this is the plot line of the New Testament, 
or that this is just Jesus summarizing his life and what he did. But again, he's saying this is what is written in the scriptures, right? This is the story that it is communicating. Now, I don't think he's saying that every individual story within this very long plethora of scripture is communicating this exact thing, but he's speaking to the essence of it. What he's saying is that from Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning of the law of Moses, that the scriptures have always been leading us to this very moment. They have been leading us to an anointed representative who, who enters into death and suffering and out the other side so that a whole new direction of humanity can go from that place and time and invite the nations to enter into this entirely new direction. And what exactly is that new direction that, that Jesus provided a way for humanity to enter? That is a question that we are going to be unpacking throughout the entire course of this series. But what I want us to remain focused on this morning is that a question we posed right at the beginning. Why did we inherit a Two Testament book? What does this provide a follower of Jesus? And according to Jesus, what he tells us is that his story, right, the story of the man we call ourselves disciples of, his story does not begin in Matthew chapter 1. His story begins in Genesis chapter 1. And it's in reading through the story in its entirety that the mission and the ministry and the identity of Jesus is revealed. And so if we want to experience that full revelation of exactly who Jesus is, then we need to know the full story. Which is why when the disciples were confused about who he was, what did Jesus do? He told them the story. And so if we think of our sermon series that we are now entering for the first, the first one today, um, From Garden to City, the purpose of today was to just introduce the, the series. It was to, to kind of place the Old Testament in its proper place and understand it through the lens of how Jesus understood the scriptures and how it really is a unified story that leads us to the person of Jesus Christ. But what we want to do for the remainder of the 10 weeks that we are in this series is to do what Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. We want to just tell the story, right? A story that begins in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with a garden, a story that leads us directly to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but a story that doesn't end there, a story that continues to seeing in Revelation 22 the same garden we saw in Genesis chapter 2, but this time in the form of a city. And so as a pastoral staff and team, we were reflecting on what kind of stuff we wanted to dive into in our time on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning worship, now that we're through the Christmas season. And there were a few reasons why we settled on a, a series of this nature where we tracked through the narrative arc of the entire Bible would be of value to us. The first reason is straight from reading Luke, 20, Luke chapter 24, right? And what we've already unpacked today, it's that if we want to experience the full revelation of Jesus Christ, then we have to know his story, right? Because if we think of these two interactions we read about today, what blinded the men from understanding exactly who Jesus was and from recognizing him, even though that he was standing right in front of them, 
was that they didn't understand the story. They were confused about what exactly it was communicating. And so upon Jesus clarifying and working through the story with them, they were able to make sense of the events that they had witnessed and they were able to see Jesus for who he truly was. The second reason we would love to work through the narrative arc of the Bible with you is simply because this story is just worth sharing. It's just worth sharing, right? This story completely reorients our life for the better. It changes the way that we, we see the world, it changes the way we view ourselves, it changes the way that we interact in the world, and it literally changes our eternal destiny. And this is a story that is for everyone. Everyone in this room, everyone on the face of this planet, this story is for. And whether you are vaguely familiar with this story or you are very familiar with this story, we believe that every time we open it that there are treasures to be found. And so it is our prayer and our very confident expectation that as we open these words week in and week out and engage in them, that each and every one of us has the opportunity to find some remarkable treasures. And so it's my prayer that you will really press in to the scriptures as we engage in them together. And the final reason we wanted to engage in a series such as this is because the Bible or the scriptures were never meant to be an ancient artifact. And so, yes, this book is a bunch of historical documents. It documents human history. It documents the way in which God has worked in our worlds. But once the truths of these words are revealed to us and we accept and come to know the God that is revealed through these words, this story is no longer just like a story. It, it actually becomes our story. It, it becomes the story that God invites us to step into each and every day. Because, as I said, the story isn't over. Right? We, we may know how the story is going to end, but that doesn't mean the end has come. And so, until God brings everything to completion in that final vision of the city, he invites us to play a very significant role in the unfolding of this story. And so, if our desire as members of Northridge Community Church, as disciples of Jesus, is to play an active and faithful role in the unfolding of that story, then it's important to know what that story exactly is that we are stepping into. And so once again, it's my prayer that as we both engage here on Sunday mornings, from now all the way up until Easter, as we track through the narrative arc of the Bible and the story that it is communicating, and as we read on our own in that YouVersion Bible plan, it is my prayer that you press in to exactly the God and the plan that he is unfolding, that he has revealed in the scriptures to us um, as we read from Genesis 1 in the garden all the way to Revelation 22 with that final vision of the city. Are you as excited as I am? I love it. Why don't, I'll invite the worship team to come up, why don't we spend some time in prayer this morning.
Dear Heavenly Father, we are incredibly blessed, Lord, as uh, many of us were driving in and enjoying the sun, uh, blessed to be able to be living in your beautiful creation. Um, Lord, blessed to be able to have the living and breathing word of God in our hand, Lord. Um, we know that these are historical documents, but Lord, we know that you reveal yourself through them and that you worked in incredible ways through the people that brought us these texts and this word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we engage in it as a community, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself, continue to reveal to us what you are doing on a grand level and what you are doing in a very intimate level, Lord, because we know that you, you invite each and every one of us to step into what you are doing. And Lord, I know that um, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to exactly know how you are wanting us to engage with you in the work that you are doing. Um, but I pray that as we all continue to press in press into community, press into understanding your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, reveal the ways in which you want us to press in. And I pray that we would use our community um, to encourage each other, to challenge one another, and that we can all learn from one another. And so we thank you for this community, Lord, and I pray that the rest of this service and this time together today, Lord, would just bring honor and glory and pleasure to you as you look down upon us. And so we thank you for this time, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.